Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, and welcome to this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know. I'm Chuck Collins. I'm president and CEO of the YMCA of San Francisco. I'm a member of the Board of Governors of the Commonwealth Club and your moderator for this program. Today's program is entitled Giving Youth a Voice, and we're pleased to have a high-level group of San Francisco civic leaders and philanthropists who will discuss the importance of and the need to empower the youth voice, enabling young people to make change happen in their own communities. Our conversation will focus on the disparities that exist for our youth and families and how local entities are working to close the gap in health, education, and access to the out-of-doors. The discussion will also explore how government, nonprofits, the business community can best work together to ensure that youth are positioned for success. It's now my pleasure to introduce our panelists. Nasina Chambers is currently pursuing a double major in cognitive science and African-American studies at the University of California at Berkeley, a participant in the Mayor's Youth Employment and Education Program, a graduate of multiple YMCA youth development programs. Nasina is a prime example of a young person who found her voice and excelled. A skilled orator, Nasina was an MC at the YMCA of San Francisco Y for Youth event multiple times and has served as a youth panelist for a Google-sponsored screening of the film Selma. Sam Cobbs is the president of the Tipping Point community. He has been involved with the Tipping Point community since it began, serving as the CEO First Place for Youth, a long-standing grantee for 12 years. Under Sam's leadership, First Place grew from an Oakland-based grassroots organization into one of the largest providers of housing and services for former foster youth in the United States. Sam is a recipient of the Children and Family Fellowship from the Annie E. Casey Foundation and was awarded the 2010 Irvine Foundation Leadership Award. He has also served in leadership positions at the Larkin Street Youth Services, Juma Ventures, and the Boys and Girls Club of Oakland. Sandra Lee Fuhrer is our District 1 supervisor in San Francisco. She is a fourth-generation Chinese-American and from 2001 and 2000 till 2009, Supervisor Fewer worked at the Coleman Advocates for Children and Youth as the Director of Parent Organizing and Educational Policy, where she nurtured and empowered leaders and parents. On the San Francisco Unified School District Board, she led the new era for consensus building, results orientation, and in her early years, she served in multiple roles in support of public education, including the Parent Teacher Association President and Schools Councils. Carlos Sanvi is the Secretary General of the World Alliance of YMCAs, a federation of independent associations linked with the World Alliance of YMCAs based in Geneva, Switzerland. He previously served as the General Secretary of the African Alliance of YMCAs, based in its headquarters in Nairobi, Kenya. Under his leadership, African YMCA movements made great strides in positioning themselves as a united continental body focusing on youth empowerment in Africa. Carlos began his journey as a volunteer for the Togo YMCA and worked his way up to Deputy General Secretary, a position he held for five years. Our final panelist is Dr. Maria Sue, clinical psychologist and executive director of the San Francisco Department of Children, Youth, and Their Families. In 2009, Mayor Gavin Newsom appointed her to lead the department, which grants out approximately $70 million each year for services that support children and families from birth to age 24 and their families. Prior to working in the department, Maria held management and senior management and executive positions at the Vietnamese Youth Development Center in San Francisco's Tenderloin District and at the San Francisco General Hospital and the University of California at San Francisco. Please welcome all of our panelists.
And again, welcome to you, and thank you very much for this robust audience. So we're going to jump into this, and we're going to ask a few questions, and then we'll also ask for questions coming from the audience. Uh, this is a panel where we're really talking about how to give youth voice, and we also, also know that youth uh, by themselves are not empowered to have voices without advocates and people who help to increase their agency in the world. So I'd like to start with a question, um, and maybe I'd like for Dr. Sue to <laughs> lead us off here sure. from end to end. In looking at your success and what influenced you as a young person, what are the three contributing factors that inspired you to achieve and break through those barriers? Thank you for the question. And first off, I want to thank the Commonwealth Club for having this wonderful panel and for Chuck for inviting us. Um, this discussion is extremely important, particularly now during our time where uh, voices in general are, are suppressed and um, are pushed aside. And so having opportunities to express the need for more voices in, in the discussion is really, really important. Uh, and on behalf of our department, we greatly appreciate the opportunity to be here um, to, to share our voice. Um, so what influenced me? I think I was very, very fortunate to have, um, very strong parent role models who, um, were committed to not only working really hard to, to move up, but also, uh, working hard for a purpose. And, and that purpose led to a drive and a goal. Um, I was also very fortunate to, uh, have, uh, to live really close to a YMCA. And this is this is really not intentional. He he, he doesn't know this. <laughs> I grew up in pu in public housing in Boston, um, and there was a YMCA that was near our house, and it really was my saving place, my safe place to go after school, um, so that I could uh, be with my colleagues, be with peers, but more importantly, be with caring adults, because my parents. They were so driven and working, they were not available um, for, for my brothers and I. Um, and, then, and then lastly, just the foundation of education. Um, for, for, for my family, for, for me particularly, I was given the opportunity to, 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 do, to, to do whatever it takes to excel in school. Uh, my parents truly valued educa education um, and made sure that um, that was priority and prioritized in our family and, and um, in our daily lives. Um, and I had the opportunity to explore and to, to learn as much as I could and wanted to. Um, and that was embraced by my community, by my family, and by my school. And I think that was very, very important. Thank you. Sam, we're here in San Francisco the epicenter of tech innovation and a recognized global economy. How can we best leverage these assets to provide an environment where young people thrive and meet their highest potential? So uh, thank you, Chuck, for the question. And once again, thank you to the Commonwealth Club for the invite and the, the YMCA and Chuck for pulling the, the panel together. And so San Francisco is a, is a very unique place. Not only are we... Um, in the hub of tech and innovation. We are, when you start to think about if, if organizations are global or if they're national, then San Francisco always comes up. Uh, but unlike some other places that are deemed as global and national, San Francisco is also small enough that you can get your whole arm around it, right? And so that you can, the, the issues, uh, the population size, what it is that we're dealing with is not so insurmountable that it that you can't get your arms around it. And so what is it that we have to do to support young people in, in San Francisco with all of the um, advantages that we have here as a as a as a city? And when I think about the advantages, I'll just give you an example. I, as Chuck said, I ran a program um, first place for youth and we were in six Bay Area counties as well as other places nationally. And I ran a program here that was funded by Maria and others, the Independent Living Skills Program. And we had young people in San Francisco who were a part of the Independent Living Skills Program. And because in San Francisco, you have an excellent tax base. And so San Francisco didn't only invest what it was that came from state and federal 
sources to fund this program. It also invested in its, in its general operating funds because young people was a priority. If you just suppose that to other parts of the Bay Area that I worked in, uh, they didn't have that tax base. And so the only thing that they could spend on the young people was what it was that they were getting from the state and federal coffers. And so what that created was this mass inequity. And when you go a step further, what I will say is because of the shifting populations and demographics of a place like San Francisco, that when I looked in those other counties, that anywhere from 50 to 60 percent of the young people who were in those counties were actually from San Francisco, which created another layer of of inequity. So what is it that we can do in San Francisco? First, I think we have to think about San Francisco as the leader in the epic center of the hub of a region and not thinking about it as its own kind of siloed. I would often say that there's a whole lot more distance between Oakland and San Francisco than the nine miles of the Bay Bridge. And so we have to think about that as a, as a, as San Francisco as a hub. The other thing that we have to think about is how do we give access to all young people to the innovations that we're talking about? And so one of the things uh, Professor used to be uh, commissioner in San Francisco, Michael Wall, once wrote a uh, published a paper called Disconnected Youth. Mm. And what he talked about in his in his world of disconnected youth was that there is a generation of young people who were being disconnected from our mainstream um, resources and mainstream society. And that if we didn't do something, if we didn't get our game together and begin to work with those young people who were disconnected, they were disconnected from schools, they were disconnected from churches, they were disconnected of the mainstream pillars of our society, that we were going to be in trouble. Fast forward a few years later, people with a whole lot of good intention, they said, well, we don't want young people to not have a a positive frame. So we want to change disconnected youth to opportunity youth. But that did something else. What that did is when we start to talk to companies like like Google and, all, and, and Twitter and all of the hub, there is enough opportunity youth, meaning young people who may need just a little bit of a nudge to go from being under the poverty level to above the poverty level. Just a little bit of a nudge. There are enough of those young people in our country and in our region to solve all of our issues around our workforce. But then what that does is that leaves behind the most vulnerable young people, the one that we call disconnected young people, and they're still disconnected. And so what can we do? We can create a create a region that is embracing and valuing all of the voices at the table, not just the ones that we like to hear or when I ran programs, not just the cute ones, but all of them. Thank you. You know, you jumped into programs and systems and policies and, and understanding San Francisco as a hub. You know, I'd love to ask Supervisor Fewer, you know, what are the policies and systems changes that should be our greatest focus? Well, right now in San Francisco, I think we're experiencing the largest wealth gap that we've ever experienced in the history of our city. I am a fourth-generation San Franciscan, and I have never seen um, a wealth gap like this and how it has separated us as a community. I think that – so I am actually working on some policies that would help to level the playing field a little bit. It is very difficult, though, I would say, in city government when you think about city politics also, and that we live in a capitalist society and that our framework is really around a capitalist society. And yet we are leaving constantly people behind, and even more the masses of people that we are leaving behind is even more evident now than it ever has been. So I think the policies that we have to focus on are ones that actually have a racial lens that have an equity lens, that actually help to level the playing field. In a city like San Francisco, where we are the self-proclaimed most progressive city in the United States, and that we would have a black population of less than 5% is simply appalling. And when we see um, that our policies are not actually measured through an equity lens at all, but rather through... um, 
politicians, I think, that are sometimes funded and driven by um, they by the success of economic success for the city as a whole, but not really looking at who we're leaving behind. I really feel that as San Franciscans, we have a responsibility, actually, to the legacy of what we have in San Francisco. We lead the way. We were the first city to actually set aside money for the Department of Children, Youth, and Families. People said that's political suicide, and we did it anyway, and then all these cities started to follow because we knew that children, youth, and families are so important actually, to um, a vibrant and um, healthy society. And yet we see that we have the lowest, actually, school-age population of any urban city in the United States. And so what is happening here is happening rapidly, and we are rapidly seeing the results of it. I served on the San Francisco Board of Education for eight years. And if you want to see disparity, you start to look at those numbers. You have to look at it racially. You have to look at it economically. But really, I think the policies that we need to focus on now are policies for the people. It is not so much policies that um, we have policies in place, I think, that allow for great wealth to be built in this city. We don't have policies to regulate human greed in the way that we need to to protect actually everyone and probably everyone sitting in this room today and the children that we all serve. I think that um, we are seeing a quick push out uh, an out-migration, people call it. I call it a push-out of people of color and low-income folks. And I was just meeting with officials today who said, you know, those people that are homeless, they used to have homes in San Francisco. That used to be true. But all those people are gone now because it, we have pushed a whole population of people out. And I just think when we have a city that depends on people to help run this city. And I'm not talking about people like me. I am talking about people who drive our buses and teach our children and care for our elders and actually are the backbone, that the foundation that run our city. And we can no longer recruit them. We are in trouble. And I think we are in trouble morally also because we are going to be seeing an exodus of a social economic diversity that we have always actually prided ourselves on in San Francisco. I think when people come to San Francisco, they expect to see racial diversity. They actually expect to see a diversity of thought. And that is what made us, I think, so strong as a city that we lead the nation. Yes, first they say we're crazy, but then they follow. It is because we have this diversity of thought. And you cannot have that kind of diversity without social economic diversity. And so these are the policies that I hope that we will center on during my term as a supervisor. But also I feel it should level the playing field a little. And for the most marginalized of our communities, we it is our actually responsibility as elected officials to see them to actually see them and actually care enough about them to give them a voice because their voices have been so marginalized. Thank you. Nasina, it kind of rolls to you right now because we've been talking a lot about how we empower young people and your journey to where you are now um, as a student at the University of California. What would you advise us that we need to really focus on in order that you are not the exception to the rule? I would say for that question, just dawning on it now and listening to what Sandy was saying is that we need to give equal access to higher quality education. And we don't do that. The public school I went to, you know, I had to fight for the programs I wanted to be a part of. They didn't have them. I had to look in other places like going to the YMCA so they can direct me to programs that they're connected with so that I have access, but I didn't have access because I'm in a public school that is considered, you know, for youth that are from underserved communities and we don't get that access. And a lot of the times it's not that we're disconnected or that we want to be disconnected. It's the fact that we don't have that opportunity. We don't have the resources. We don't have Google coming into our classrooms doing um, presentations on things they should study in the future or, you know, talking about computer science. 
I wanted to see those themes brought to my school, but it wasn't. And in some cases, it's being brought to the classrooms, but it's not brought to every classroom. I think I agree with what Sam was saying that, yes, we are pushing the youth who already have that mindset and they're motivated, but we're leaving behind the youth who aren't given the access to it and don't know they have the knowledge. They're not even sure if it's okay for them for them to think beyond um, what they see in the classroom. And I have a problem with that because even in college now, right, I come from an underserved community. There's no equal access in college either. You would think now I should be on the same plane as everyone else, but I'm not because, you know, there's students who had access to like just programs or private tutoring or um, opportunities that I did not get to see. And I come from San Francisco, which you're right. It's this hub that I should be able to say I was a part of so many things, but I'm not able to say that. And I think that's an issue there that no one's looking out for youth who are like me. I have to go and fight for it. And then, you know, that becomes exhausting for youth because social media, if you bring it back into this now, they're, Yes, they're seeing that we need social change and that it's on our agenda. But the adults who post things on social media and the meme pages that you guys know your kids or nephews and nieces may follow is that um, they're seeing situations that are so intense being turned into something that can be funny. And they're not really digesting the issues for themselves, not really addressing them. Instead, they're sharing memes of something that happened, but not actually understanding it. And I think that's where it becomes a role of adults and having access to mentorship, both structured and non-structured from passionate teachers and program leaders um, to help us see that we need to be aware of these issues. So I'm not sure if I answered the question, but that's what I, I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I think you more than answered the question. You certainly did open up the question for more inquiry. Now, Carlos, I'd love for you to talk about barriers and opportunities that you see that youth face in really seeking significant social change. I mean, Nasina was just talking about, you know, the system that she emerged from, the educational system. What do you think are some of the other, you know, really big systems that we have to confront in order to advance our, our young people? Thank you. Uh, first, also, I want to say thank you for inviting me. Um, thank you to Chuck. Chuck is one of the rare people in this world who tell me, jump and ask him how high it's. Uh, so, so thank you for bringing me here. Uh, I represent the YMCA worldwide and we are present in 120 countries, uh, serving more than 12,000 communities. So it's a huge organization and generally when I come to the U.S., the image of the YMCA is the gym and swim. So, but the YMCA is more than gym and swim in other places. I know many communities when you close the YMCA, uh, some people might die because the YMCA is the center of what keeps this community going. So we are more than what people imagine about the YMCA. And when we are focused on young people, and all worldwide is not new because the, the DNA of the YMCA is the young people. So in many places of the world now, we are refocusing on the young people. So when you talk about what are the barriers and opportunity, is the demographics overall is put the young people at the center of everything that's going to happen. A world where the young people are hopeful will be a better world. When the young people lose opportunity to be hopeful, when they don't have the opportunity to bring the creativity, we'll have a problem long run. So the barrier here is that to put young people just as a consumer, people imagine something that young people need and then they give to them, develop app for young people to use rather than putting the young people in the center of the development or how they see the world. And we know that this world is going so fast that uh, the, the future development of the world needs to be seen through the lens of these young people. So I like what you say about the lens of uh, um, equal access, the lens of um, all those opportunities. We talk about technology, but technology that is human-centered. Because 
we can produce robots, we can produce machines, we can produce everything. But the young people, they want that space to belong. So anything that will be the opportunity for young people is about those spaces that we created where young people feel belong, uh, they belong, and then shape their city. And this is what YMCAs around the world we are trying to do to have those space, nurture those space, hold those space for young people to feel they belong so that they can give access to their creativity and to uh, foster for a more equitable world. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in stitching together a couple of the themes here, we were talking about disconnected youth or youth of opportunities. That might be the flip side of the same coin. And, and I've heard you, Carlos, and I'd love for others to chime in here. Um, in many ways, this world is not going well for young people. Mm. Radicalization is on the rise in, in, in so many f- frameworks. And I'd love for, for you to kind of bear into this a little bit and, and talk about the consequences that we face if we leave these, these s- substantial challenges unanswered. Maybe allow me to take you to East Africa, um, so Nairobi, Ethiopia, Somalia, where we have a group of radicalized young people called Al-Shabaab, or in Nigeria, Boko Haram, and this is stuff of all young people doing things. And the YMCA, we start a program that is entitled Because I Count. Why? Because when we did the research, what came out is that these young people does not feel they count, that their voice is not taken into consideration by anyone. And then they have another narrative for other people who come and try to manipulate them to say, for you to count, you need to do something radical to attract their attention. Mm. That's basically, those young people, they want to be noticed, they want their voice to be heard. And generally it starts with the economic potential. So those young people are idle, who are not country. They don't go to school, and they are just there, and then you have people. It's not generally uh, uh, the, the religious leaders. They can also be political leaders. But through our program in the YMCA, with this become our account to say, your voice counts. What is your voice? How do you express this voice? How do you articulate? How do you frame your concern so that people can listen to? Generally, when young people want to politician, first, you don't see the politician. You don't see the decision makers. Well, how can YMCA be a place where these young people and the politicians and all religious leaders can meet? And that's a program the YMCA in Kenya is involving on using YMCA space as a meeting point. All those people will come. At the beginning, it was very tense. But with time, with education, the young people are knowing how to address. And then uh, the politicians also are learning how to listen to those young people to see what is a win-win situation for us. So the economic is the first trigger. But the second one is about the political. They say most of the money in most of our countries has been used for other things than education, than health, and the environment. And the young people have a concern about that. And if they don't have, it's a time bomb. If they don't have, the only thing they do, somebody arm them and then go and shoot people as a way to attract their attention. But this is a space where young people, YMCA also, we are working on because I count, because the voice of young people count. And how can we, as a YMCA worldwide, when we are dealing with billions of young people, we can make young people's voice count, we will change this world. Thank you. Can I I add something to that, Chuck? Because I think uh, at one point I I used to walk into rooms like this, and I would always be the youngest person here, and it's really – Interesting to now walk in, and I'm probably one of the oldest people here. <laughs> but no. but having no, that, no, that but having that that time of being able to view things over over time and over decades. And so what I what I would say is that um, what was just described is not new in the United States. That we've always had that, uh, but how we approached it and how we looked at it was different. And the reason why is because that was contained in our inner cities. That was the Bloods and the Crips and the Disciples and, 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 and gang violence. And how it was dealt with was very different because, because now in today's world, there are more people threatened by the radicalization of people. I would also say that those 
those people who were living in the Caprini, young people living in the Caprini Green mm-hmm. projects and young people living in, in East LA and South Central LA, that they were radicalized, but because the, because the violence on some level was contained, to a place that it was contained at. It's the same way I feel sorry if I get in trouble about the opioid epidemic. How we choose to confront what's happened with opioid is very different from how we chose to confront the last drug epidemic that we had in this country. Why? Because one was contained, one is much more broader. And so as we begin to think about what it is that happens with young people who are left behind, who are feeling hopeless, who are feeling uh, despair because they don't see people in leadership positions who don't just look like them, but are attainable and approachable by them. One of the greatest things that ever happened to me is I got to work at a at a club called the Oakland Athletic Club, and in working at that club, there were I got a chance to to meet the mayor of Oakland, Ella Lou Harris. I got a chance to meet the the guy who owned all of the McDonald's in Oakland at the time by the name of Charles Duvall. And all of them had a few things in common. They all looked like me. They were all cool. They were interested in the same things that I were interested in. And they all drove the best cars and had the prettiest (laughs) wives. (laughs) And I said, hey. The other thing that they have in common is they all have an education. Mm. And so I needed to go back and pursue those things because it wasn't just that they looked like me. But they were attainable and they were approachable. Mm -hmm. And so radicalization has it, you know, it isn't new. We've seen this. We've seen this movie before. And if you haven't seen it, go back and watch Colors because it is the same thing. But now because it's, it's spreading out, it's just not contained in the parts of our communities that it is okay for things to be contained in. Now we have a different urgency about it. And so I just want to point, I just want to point that out and I can be provocative, but I, I just need to say that we've seen this before and we will, if we don't act in a different way, we will get the same results that we've gotten previously. Thank you. You are listening to the Commonwealth club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. So we've kind of opened up this and, and looked at some of the problem sets and some of the, the kind of roots to this. You know, Maria, the Department of Children, Youth, and Their Families, as Supervisor Fuhrer was saying, and Sam, uh, gives us a unique opportunity. You know, the Children's Fund is noted by people, I think, globally, Mm -hmm. where a city has made a commitment to invest its dollars at the front end of life. Mm -hmm. Would Would you talk a bit about that? And I'd love to hear Supervisor Fuhrer also kind of join in here because this is a moment that we can perhaps really think about, you know, what you've spent a lot of time putting in place and others that we're acting on now. Sure. Um, but before that, I just want to comment and say that I, I definitely see the problem for, for our young people now in, in this society is that they're not, they don't feel like they are being seen. Mm-hmm. And so they're doing things so that people can see them. And we as a society need to recognize that and figure out how do we help young people feel seen because they have a voice and it is our job to amplify that voice. And how do we direct and and support that? Um, I think that's the work. Um, in terms of DCYF, our department wants to close the gap of all disparities for our African-Americans, Latinos, and Pacific Islanders in this city. Because, as Supervisor Fewer and others have noted, the disparity within the city is so grave. And it's one of those things when you see the data of young people not achieving in, in all life outcomes of education attainment, of health achieve, of health attainments, of self-sufficiency, of housing security, of food security. 
it is shameful for the city to to be a progressive city, to be so wealthy, and yet we have a subset of our city, of our citizens, of our children, um, who who do not have. Um, and as a parent who's trying to raise children here, that's not acceptable. So within our department, we try to work with nonprofit agencies to support and create that safety network so that we can uh, make sure that we lift all of our voices, we lift our young people up, um, and we provide that support so that families can stay here, can thrive here, um, and can be self-sufficient. So we fund programs in areas of childcare because as we know, uh, childcare is extremely expensive and Families and parents need to work, and childcare is one avenue to support that. It helps our young people gain those early skills and exposure to structured environments, so that they can then transition into school um, and then be successful there. Uh, our department also funds nonprofit agencies to provide after-school services and wraparound supports for young people during the school day and in the school hours, because we believe that learning doesn't stop at the close at three o'clock. Learning does not start at nine o'clock and doesn't stop at three o'clock, nor does it start or stop within a classroom. It happens throughout the whole day. When I was young, running around at the YMCA in Boston. Um, I was learning. I was learning to just explore, and I did learn to swim at the Y. And I think that was amazing because swimming in high school saved me because it created this environment of um, of a team and, and lifted me up when I couldn't – I didn't have my parents there or when we were moving from cities to cities and places to places. So we feel strongly that having caring adults wrap around our young people is very important. We also feel strongly that young people, teenagers, need to have um, opportunities to explore different career choices, different um, job availabilities in, in, the, in our city, in our communities. And so we support that early... Um, job placement, whether you call it subsidized opportunities, subsidized placements, um, but it's it's more for them to just kind of put a feeler out there and, and have a place where it's safe to fail. I think the other thing that Sam was talking about was just these young people are living in such a fast-paced world that um, social media can catch fire in some ways. You know, they say something here, and normally during my time, I can say something really silly out of spite, but it doesn't live with me forever. And nowadays, if you say something online, that lives with you. So there is no safe place to fail, no safe place to learn to recover from that failure and move on. So we need to create that, and we have that within our department by creating and supporting workforce development programs where young people can have that opportunity to learn what it's like to work in an environment, to have a supervisor, um, and yes, to fail, but then to pick themselves back up, to learn how to move past that failure, or more importantly, to learn how to have a conversation with someone to then ask for help to move past and move on and work through those issues. Um, so we're really fortunate in the city that we prioritize young people and we have, we have this dedicated allocation of funding for young people and for their families so that we can all share in the prosperities of the city. But I recognize that other cities don't have that. Um, and and I think one of the things that we as citizens of the Bay Area and around around the country and the world needs to do is ask our government to ensure that not only are they talking the talk, they got to walk the walk. You've got to put monies into policies and programs that support our children, youth, and families. You need to prioritize funding and not just one-time-a-year funding it's not one of those things. It has to be multi-year funding because children's lives are not in segment, segmented by, by, 
a time. It's, it's, it's this long term. It's a, it's a long investment. It's a long game. Um, and so my, my plea to, to local officials and governments and other cities is that you need to make sure that there's dedicated funding for children and you need to prioritize our children, youth and families because they are the future. Without them, we're going to end up in a place where, um, it's, I don't know. It's not going to, yeah. you know, I keep saying to folks, we only have, we have a few jobs as adults um, in our young people's lives. Is we need to make sure that we create a safe environment for them. We need to make sure that there is a safe environment, period. There is an environment for them. Um, and we need to make sure that they have all the necessary foundations so that they can be, th- so they can thrive and be amazing human beings um, as they grow up. That's what we need. And I, I would add to that that so we rely in San Francisco very heavily on our nonprofit organizations to actually um, help us at, with the development and growth of youth and children. You know, many times as adults, and I will just say, you know, myself included, that um, I'm 62. I I don't know the lives of the students that actually I would have um, governance over as a school board member. And it was really brought to light to me when my son said to me, um, we had a difference in opinion about something. And he said to me, well, mom, have you been in the classroom? Do you know what it's like being 15 years old in a high school classroom? And yet you're selling these policy and policies. And he's absolutely right. I knew nothing. And I think that we as policymakers sometimes forget that. We forget that we don't know what it's like. It is a changing world. And this is why we depend so heavily on our nonprofit organizations that really have their ear to the ground about what is happening with youth. When I hear about something in my district that there was a fight uh, among students out on the street, I immediately call my nonprofit partner and say, Michelle, what's going on over at Washington High School? When I want to know what's going um, happening with youth, I will go to someone like Andrew Ward also, who is the YMCA in our district. This, because I don't know. And I think actually what we've been talking about too, about a safe place, about a feeling of belonging, or having actually a place where you can go to that people believe in you or give you these opportunities to help level the playing field. It is about these nonprofit organizations that we fund through the city to actually nurture our youth. So we, through the school district, we try to educate them, right? Through um, city policies, we kind of regulate them. But really to nurture them and love them, it is about nonprofit agencies. And I just want to say that it is, it is sort of a coincidence, but maybe by no coincidence, that as we were meeting each other, that all three of us had... Um, participated in wide programs as youth. It was so crazy. Even myself at 16, 62 years old when I was in seventh grade was at my Richmond District YMCA Lucky Seven Club with seven of my classmates together with a, um, an adult facilitator guiding our conversations and these safe places that in a crazy, crazy world that they can go to and they can be completely open about who they are. They can be vulnerable. They can be, um, they can have their opinion. They can have their voices. They can share tragedy. They can share joy, but they can also share this misunderstanding about, or non-understanding about the world around them and what is happening and how to explain it. And how do I make sense of it? How do I make sense of my crazy, sometimes chaotic life that they are living now? These nonprofits, I think that, and I don't school board. We depended heavily on nonprofits to do this type of work because we are so disconnected with what youth are doing today. We just don't know. And this is, um, and I think actually that without, so with, with Maria and I, um, she will tell you that she funds a lot of nonprofits and probably most of the money goes to nonprofits mm-hmm. to help supplement the work of city governments and institutions like our educational system. And we could not do it without them. We have gotten to a point now that the nonprofits that we actually fund are so in tune with what our students need. And what we've learned is that the more eyes that we have on our students, and especially those years when they are not speaking to their parents and they are not speaking to their teachers and they are not speaking to people of authority, 
that people that they've had relationships with for years and years and years, these are the people they will come to. And I think as adults, we have to remember that when students or young people come to us and we turn them away, they will never come back mm. again. And this is why the nonprofits are so important. Their doors are open. Their hearts are open. Their minds are open. It is not judgmental. They have a belief the people that do youth work actually have a fundamental belief that um, youth can be resilient, mm -hmm. that confidence is gained through repeated failures and conquering those failures, and that no, no youth is a throwaway youth, that everyone has the potential. And some kids just need chances two and three times, and sometimes they need to belong. And I think when we saw a gang epidemic here in San Francisco, among a lot of our immigrant youth, it was about a belonging, and where do you belong, and is there a place for you to belong? So I also want to add that we have a large immigrant population in San Francisco that is very vulnerable. Um, they come from low-income families. Many of them are targeted by our own government now. And so as we shield them and, and put a safety net and safety blanket around them, there has to be people within our communities that we, that can live here in San Francisco, that can serve our youth in San Francisco, make a living wage in San Francisco, that actually can work with their youth because that expertise as a government, as institutions, um, government institutions, we just don't have. And if we, if we don't have those workers that are um, providing the safety net around our youth, that we are going to see way more than what we have seen. We are going to see tragic, tragic things happen because actually they are our future. And um, I just think I am proud that San Francisco doesn't. I wish we gave more money, quite frankly, considering we spend <laughs> on other things, because I actually think youth now actually need even more support. Mm -hmm. Nasina, you know, it, the ball keeps coming back to you in so many different ways. I want to fast forward and think about some years from now when you're taking your background in cognitive science and computer science and African-American studies, and you are the mayor of this city. Um, you're the chief executive of this city, something that I think would just be the beginning of a career mm -hmm. uh, for you. But, you know, from what you can see right now, what should we be doing? Where should we be arriving right now with a few very, very strong messages that you would put forward? Okay, arriving right now or in 10 years from now? Okay. <laughs> right, right, now so. right now, you're going to project... <laughs> 10 years from now. You're going to be like Wayne Gretzky. You're going to see where the puck is going. Okay. Well, I would say actually that I would focus my attention on taking away the meaning of belittling youth that they do not know what they're talking about. A lot of the times they are so aware and they're frustrated and this frustration stems from their leaders not being leaders, not good leaders at all. And they'll see that in, you know, politicians, maybe in teachers, maybe in community leaders who they don't feel are representing them very well. And they will say something. And, you know, there's been times even myself, people consider me credible as a youth, you know, and they will say, you know, good ideas, but someone who's not as known as me in the community, they won't believe that their issues are valid. And that's a problem. Honestly, I feel like growing up in San Francisco, I was thankful um, to go to high school here and that my parents um, went to school in San Francisco as well. And just being able to know their environment, I know that you guys care about San Francisco youth. And I know you guys want us to be the best leaders and to grow into our best selves one day and to reach the success that you guys think is ideal for us. But the problem is we're not even setting our goals on like what we want to do and no one's reminding us or holding us accountable to that. So when we have issues, we just forget about them. We think it's another thing that just happens today and we'll forget about it tomorrow. So that is where I would focus my attention. Just ultimately, I think it's right that we need to give the youth more. They're in need actually, because they are, they are speaking up, but no one's taking them to the point of, that it's necessary. No one thinks that it's necessary for youth to come out about the things that they need a space. Everyone thinks 
safe spaces sometimes are silly and it's not especially when you bring race or gender or sexism or anything like that into it you need those spaces and people aren't saying that they're needed to be funded anymore sometimes and it's like we get into this space i'm seeing like now in college or i'm looking back at my college years and (laughs) no one you know opened that space up i had to come into college and say no we do need a space for this like there's only three percent of african americans at uc berkeley that's shameful and a lot of people might think well you're fortunate to be in that space you have to give them the voice i shouldn't have to give the voice to these human beings there are humans i don't like thinking that i'm separate that i have to think only for african americans or only for asians or someone has to only think for the latinx community you shouldn't have to think like that when it's all about human beings And I feel like that's where the focus will come from, because Generation Z is fed up with thinking separately. We're tired of thinking that I'm African-American, so I only have to stick with African-American. We're not on that level anymore. And that's an old generation who thought that way. And I'm going to advocate for that. I think they should never have to feel that way. They shouldn't have to feel separate. They shouldn't have to feel insecure about what friend groups they want to be in because they feel like they won't be credible in their race. You know, um, that's where I would start. It's <laughs> a lot to do. You know, Carlos, I'd love for you to talk about some of the um, effective collaborations. Um, I think both Supervisor Fewer and, and Mr. Cobbs and, and Maria Sue were talking about collaborations among nonprofits, um, non-governmental organizations, community and government to ensure that youth have those types of resources. Where do you see these? And I'd love to hear Sam because I think Tipping Point is right in that that space. You know, to talk about what effective collaborations really look like. Okay, thank you. Um, when I was listening, I was asking myself, what if we are able to talk and to create this ecosystem? of organizations that's genuinely concerned about youth empowerment or youth development. Mm-hmm. Not us as non-for-profits, as you call it here, in where I come from, call it civil society, go in and beg mm-hmm. from resources mm-hmm. and go in and just say, no, the law has changed, you cannot do that. But what if we come together and we first see it to say what is the issue and how do we develop it so that everybody come with his or her expertise and to make it happen. So we are equal around the table and make sure that the young people are also sitting at that table so that we identify clearly the problem and each of them and its unique selling points to make sure that it happened. New in this job is two months old in this job, but my clear agenda is to make sure that the YMCA all over the places and that I think San Francisco has a, a competitive advantage to, to, to try this, to say how can we make the YMCA be the center where we bring all those partners together to design the solution for that work. Because governments and others, everybody has his own, his silos. Everybody decides this is what you want to do. And time to time, we collaborate. It's not working. It's not working. The young person is not siloed. It's one block. The same person have a a mental issue, health issue, um, esteem, all those type of things is in one person. So we cannot silo the solution. And then today we missed 20% of this, 10% of this is not a recipe uh, for the, the, uh, to, to make a cake. It's not like that. It's a human being here. So if we can, if we can come together and identify the issue and see how we come and then provide I think we'll have a, a, a different, and it's happening very small in different community, but not very radical. So we need to find a way to radical collaborate to say all those departments come together, clean sheets. How are we going to solve this problem together? Mm-hmm. And you we'll know, see the difference. You know, that voice about <laughs> radical collaboration um, is absolutely necessary because so many organizations come out of this competitive landscape. Mm, yeah. And I think that. You know, while we've had a lot of talk about, you know, the YMCA today, and I thank you for all of your comments, for the record, but also we do live in an ecology. I think that Tipping Point has done a phenomenal job 
of really inspiring collaboration. You know, Sam, you know, what, is the, what, is the, what are some of the levers about that to move from competition to radical collaboration? So I think uh, the way that we think about uh, competition and collaboration at Tipping Point, um, what I will say is that there will – I think the myth that happens around nonprofits or people have about nonprofit organizations is that there is a level of, of, of competition. And there, it is – we will often say that there's so much need. Why do you need to compete? Well, there are very few resources to serve all of that need. And so we get into this – we get into this this competition or we are – we're competitors, right? We're, we're together and we're collaborating, but we're always – but we're also competing. I think the thing that we, we have to understand is what Chuck talked about is – is how do you serve and how do you think about that whole individual? And what I've seen happen in philanthropy before is that they will fund different parts of what I will call a, a collective impact initiative. or They'll fund a different part of, of a continuum of services. And they just expect everybody to work together. But no one has been intentional of saying this is what your role is and this is what your role is, that it is really a marathon of handing the baton to the next partner that you have. And so one of the things that we think about at, at Tipping Point is how do we build organizations that then begin to build movements? How do we help organizations and build this ecosystem of high-performing organizations within the San Francisco Bay Area? There are over 11,000 nonprofit organizations in the Bay Area. Having run an organization and now being on the other side, I will tell you that all of those nonprofits are not created equally. That all of them more than likely have the great heart to do the work. At the same time, you need to mix great head and intellect with your heart to do the work. And that means that you have to figure out what it is that works and what is your key ingredient to that cake and how do you just stay focused along with others on your key ingredient? One of the, the greatest collaborations that I've seen that took a lot of courage um, by some individuals because they had to admit that they didn't have all of the answers. And that collaboration is actually between the, uh, the National YMCA and the United States YMCA and an organization called BUILD. Building Educational Leaders for Tomorrow, I think it's what the acronym is. And what the YMCA acknowledged was that, you know, we do and we've been doing after school and summer programming for a very long time. But what we acknowledge is that we are not the best in the world, nor do we actually have all of the competencies or resources to become the best in the world at this. But there's this other organization out there called Bell, which Tipping Point has funded for years and continues to do so. That they have randomized controlled trials. They know exactly what it is. They have this curriculum that is portable. What if we partner with them? And this collaboration and this partnership was developed between Bell and the YMCA. And, and why that is so important is because somebody had to give something up. And when you start talking about radical collaborations, what we think about in the nonprofit world is that, we just going to do what you do, we do, and you're just going to do what you do. But if you're going to truly have a collaboration, somebody is going to have to give something up. And so how do we negotiate that and how do we do that? And I think at Tipping Point, because of the way that we work, because of the way that we fund, our, our board underwrites all of our operating costs. We actually go out into the community and raise money, and 100% of that goes out to the organizations that we fund. Last year, we funded close to... 64 organizations, almost $100 million. Uh, this year, we'll do closer to about 65 or $70 million. And so, but the, the key to that is unrestricted dollars. We want the leaders to think about where's the best use of the dollars, not us tell them. I don't want anyone spending their time trying to, trying to make sure that this kid comes from that zip code and they wear this size shoe so that they can get paid. I want them to do the work that they need to do to help that, uh, that young person achieve the highest potential that they can do. Thank you. Chuck, can I just 
add to that. I I just feel that as funders, we need to recognize and acknowledge that we ask our nonprofit partners to do a lot of things. And for the most part, the work that we ask people, our nonprofit partners to do, are more service delivery stuff. And we don't do a lot of support for the infrastructure. And the infrastructure is what actually keeps the whole ship going. And I think as funders, we need to change that. We real and you know, Daniel Lurie and Tipping Point has has really trailblazed this whole <clears throat> model of of supporting infrastructure. Um and and part of collaboration is to recognize that it takes human humans, people to help be that connective tissue to make the collaboration work. It doesn't just, you just can't just say, oh, we want to fund a collaboration and so therefore it will be. It doesn't work that way. We need to acknowledge that the infrastructure that's needed to provide that's the, the person who's going to schedule and call and follow up. And, and then on top of that, we need to acknowledge that there's an evaluation component to that work. And then there's the implement, right? So there's a lot of pieces to collaboration that as funders, we don't, we should not have the, the luxury of saying, oh yeah, we fund collaborations and then that, and then be done. We need to acknowledge that it's more than just that. It is about us being all in and all in means we actually pay for the infrastructure and the administration of that collaboration. You know, I'd like to um, ask one kind of final question, but one that's more optimistic, right? You know, starting with Sam really talking about the remarkable resources that we have here in this place called San Francisco, um, that we are in many ways endowed with the opportunities that are rare in the history of the planet right now. You know, among them are the phenomenal potential partnerships that we have with knowledge centers. We have great universities and colleges. We have science. Uh, we have data science. We have artificial intelligence. You know, I, I live with the hope that we have the possibility here of cracking poverty. Uh, we have people that really are intent on that because so much that has been focused on here are the effects and the impacts of poverty and in a place where the gaps are growing, right? But also, if you looked at it backwards and you looked down that, that time, you know, 10 years, you know, hence, what did we do that brought those collaborations to a point of real precision, that we looked with an eye towards intergenerational opportunities and we looked towards an eye of using the tools that the academies, the science that is really coming out, because they are using this progressively, you know, in marketplaces. But is there a marketplace for the human capital that really makes San Francisco the great place it is? Um, what would you, what would you say, any of you, about the optimism that we should have, you know, going forward? If you have been here today and, or you have heard this and you, have heard Yesenia speak, how can you not be optimistic, right? When we talk about they are the future, right? That is, this is a representation of what our young people are talking about in our communities, what our young people, and and oftentimes I would, I would forget because I worked with really vulnerable young people and they often didn't know where they were going to sleep at from this day to the next. And, but there was a level of resilience and optimism that they had. Like they had no reason to be optimistic, but yet they were. And so I think when I am around, when I am around young people like her and other young people that I, that I get to be around for all of the, all of the issues that we have, I actually leave saying we're in, we're in pretty good damn shape because what we're, what we're doing is that we're, we are nurturing. Maybe not as many as we would want, but we are nurturing that next generation, and they are learning from things that we uh, that we have failed from, and so that it often takes the the arc of justice bends, but it's long, and it often takes sometimes making mistakes, and so when we think about current political, depending on where you sit at it, where we are, that sometimes that 
the things that are happening in our society, one of the things that I, I see now is that there are more people involved in this democratic and democracy debate than I've ever seen before. My barber has never talked to me about politics <laughs> until now. And so that is what makes me optimistic about what is going forward, because there are more people who are now awake and understand what is happening in our country. So I want to thank you. Um, I I would like to end this by, one, referring to my great colleague, Manuel Rodriguez, who reminds us not only to be optimistic, but to use our imagination. Mm -hmm. That we are in a time where if we shift this dialogue from disruption to imagination, we might make that increment of progress that the world is looking for. So I would like to thank our panelists. I would like to thank Sam Cobbs, who is the president of the Tipping Point community, the brilliant Nasina Chambers, the future um, president of the United States, (laughs) um, who is a student at at UC, right? Sandra Lee Feuer, um, who is the cousin of of Kari Lee, who is our District 1 supervisor, Carlos Sandvi, you know, my mentor and the general secretary of the World Alliance of YMCAs and our friend, colleague, and deeply respected public servant, Dr. Maria Sue, the director of the Department of San Francisco Children, Youth, and Their Families. I also want to thank this wonderful audience. I did capture your questions and kind of re- rebroadcast them, but I also want to thank the audience that's here on radio and television and in the Internet. I'm Chuck Collins, and for now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I really hope this is the beginning.